um, that this is Barry and Michelle's last week with us as well. The, the tyranny of distance has, has caused them to make the difficult decision to, to find a church closer to home. And even though it's his last week here, Barry has decided to worship lead for us, which is very, very cool of you to do that. So we're going to miss you guys heaps. Um, I think I speak for us all when I say we'll miss Eden the most. Um, right, she, she just brightens the room. Cool little kid. Um, the other thing worth, uh, worth mentioning is that um, as a church, we've been making our way through the book of Romans. That's what we've been doing in our time in the Word together. Uh, and the plan had been that we would just press on through, right through chapter 7, before we take our next break from the book of Romans, so that when we pick up Romans again nice and fresh, we start chapter 8, which, as you know, is the best chapter of the Bible. Um, but um, with these baptisms happening, we've, we've changed that plan somewhat. So last week, we had a baptism in the evening service, um, young, young Tom was baptized, and the passage that was planned for that week was in Romans chapter 6, which is entirely relevant to the theme of baptism. That, that connected really well. Um, but this week, we would have been starting Romans chapter 7, um, which is about how the law only applies until you die, which is less relevant to the theme of baptism, though still technically relevant to the theme of baptism. Um, so instead of doing what we had planned, we are now putting down the book of Romans for a little while starting this week. We'll do a, a topical sermon today, um, which is especially relevant to, to the baptisms happening this evening. Um, and then next week, Mike is going to start in a little, um, a little pet project series of his that he's been putting together to speak to some specific stuff that our church has been facing. And then we'll be picking up Romans chapter 7 again after the school holidays. Um, right. Because this, this, this week is special. That's, that's, that's essentially what we're saying. This week is special. This is actually really cool. Um, last week in the evening, one new believer declaring his faith in Jesus. This week, two more. This is people who have seen Jesus as the Savior and have invited him in, have, have received him in, in faith. Um, really, there's, there's two symbols given to, our, to us by Jesus himself by which we are meant to understand what life with God is all about. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. Um, each of those is teaching us something. It's bringing to our constant remembrance something about what it means to be a Christian. Communion, that symbol that we take every month as an ongoing practice throughout the whole of the Christian life. Communion is a symbol that Christians take continuously as a reminder of how it is that we continue in Christ by grace. Grace is the substance of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life. And baptism is a symbol of how we begin. It's a really good symbol, isn't it? it it's really illustrative. It's, it's, it's visual. It's tactile. It's one of those things that kind of sticks with us. Those of us who've been baptized, we remember our baptism. We place our faith in Jesus and his cross and his resurrection as the means of our salvation. When someone comes to Jesus and says, save me, what happens is at a fundamental spiritual level, there's a change that takes place in us. We've been hearing about this. There, there is a dying with him, a dying with Christ to our old way of life, which is symbolized by our being buried under the water. And there is, being, there is a, a rising with him again to a new life filled with the Spirit of God, symbolized in our coming up out of the water again. Actually, if you think about it enough, one of the things that baptism is doing um, is it's teaching us that the cross of Jesus works through time in a really funny way. I love this. I, if I think about it too much, my, bra my brain starts to leak out of my ears a little bit, but it's, it's, it's worth your thought. At the moment in history, like we just read this in chapter 6, didn't we? That we were buried with him and we were raised with him. Which means at the very moment in history that Jesus was crucified, 2,000 years ago, my sin was crucified with him. 
I was buried with him. At, 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 the, at the moment that he was being crucified, I was being crucified. And, and that means now in the present time, my sins are forgiven. Isn't that bizarre? That there is this, this kind of time thing that happens. It's as, it's as if... Um, it's as if my being buried with him in baptism was happening at the exact same moment that the nails were being driven through his hands, that he was being placed in the tomb. As least as far as, as far as God is concerned, my sin was right there on that day, before I existed. And yours. I am buried with him. When he was buried, so was I. And likewise, my rising, his rising, are inextricably linked. His literal physical resurrection from the dead, I was there. I was raised with him to a new life, which means that now in the present tense, I have been raised. Baptism symbolizes how we gain access to the salvation that comes to us through Jesus. And we mean that quite literally. When Jesus was doing that, he was doing it for us and somehow with us. Us with him. Baptism symbolizes how we gain access to a salvation that comes to us through the historical, real, concrete finished work of Jesus Christ himself. And as, as we've made our way through the book of Romans, a theme has been made clear. Salvation is not by works. It's not by earning. It's not by deserving. It's not by obeying. It's by grace and through faith, a free gift given to all who ask. But we've also been given some warnings not to misunderstand what that means. Just because it's by grace doesn't mean that the saved are free to do whatever they want all the time, to continue in the exact same life which they had before the change. That's impossible if you've been raised to a new life, you're going to live a new life, which is different to the previous life. Salvation produces fundamental changes in a person. Their life is changed forever. So what I thought we'd do on a day where two people have received this wonderful salvation, where we're celebrating with two people who have received this wonderful salvation, um, when two people are going to tell us about how they have trusted in Jesus as Savior, I thought it might be a good opportunity for us to talk about what it means to count the cost. Salvation is by grace and through faith. It's a free gift that comes at a cost. That's true at the same time. You, know, you have to pay a cost to receive it, but receiving it will cause you to pay a cost. Um, to look at that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16. Sorry, if I said 6, you would have gone to the wrong place. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at what it means to receive Jesus as Savior, what it means to lay down your life at his feet and to follow him. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 16, we are at the end of Jesus' earthly life. This is, in chapter 17 is the transfiguration and chapter 18 is the triumphal entry, right? This is, this is right at the end of his public ministry. I may have got the 18 bit wrong. Um, near the end of Jesus' life, near the end of his public ministry, when, when, when it's all getting real. It's the pointy end, heading towards the cross. And what we are told here is that there came a point in Jesus' ministry when he began to tell his disciples explicitly that his earthly ministry ends with his death. Um, we, can, we can be a little gracious with them, I hope, for not really understanding what he was talking about. It hadn't happened yet. How could victory take the form of a crucifixion? We understand that on this side of history, but on that side of history, that would have been a bit harder to grasp. Um, Matthew 16, verse 21, it says it like this. Um, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. How explicit is that? He must, (laughs) 
go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, specifically from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, raise again. Jesus knew the plan. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. There is nothing in the Easter story which took him by surprise. He predicted his own death and described it as necessary. Uh, He described it as the very reason why he came to this earth. The death of Jesus was intentional. He knew what he was here to accomplish. He knew that what he was here to accomplish was the salvation of all who would believe. For us to be buried with him and raised again to new life, he has to be buried and raised again to new life. He knew this. He was, there, he was here to accomplish the salvation of all who believe by dying on the cross. And he began to tell his disciples ahead of a time what was about to happen. Even, even later on this passage begins to explicitly talk about crucifixion before he was crucified. That must have been a confusing moment, right? When, when Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross and follow me, uh, we go, oh yeah, I get that. Surely they went, what's a cross got to do with anything? Right? I mean, they, that exists, but that's not a religious thing. <laughs> okay, Jesus begins to announce this uncomfortable news. And what we see is that that news didn't go down particularly well with the disciples. Um, I'll just keep reading. 16, 22, and 23. So Peter took him aside <laughs> and began to rebuke him. <laughs> no, Jesus, it is you who is wrong. It's gutsy. I'll give him that. Um, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. How good of an insult is get behind me, Satan, by the way? It's about as good as it gets. I think you can just drop this on people over the littlest thing, and it's, it's the best. Like, yeah. Can you make me a cup of tea? Get behind me, Satan. It's, it's, it's fun to play it at the wrong time. What's happening here? Peter rebukes Jesus. That's the word. Peter rebukes Jesus. It's what we call a bold move. No, Lord, it is you who is wrong. I know how things should be. Rebukes. Corrects. You are mistaken. I have the real truth. Here is what it is. That happened in real time. Um, I like personally that before he does this, he pulls him aside and does it on the down low. Did you, did you read that? Like P- Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He didn't want to shame him in front of the friends. <laughs> if, if you're going to correct Jesus, best to do it in private. It's, that's a nice little moment. Um, and in response, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Not because Peter is actually Satan. Peter and Jesus are absolutely friends. Jesus loves Peter. He's about to go and die for his sins on a cross. Peter loves Jesus. He will eventually be crucified, representing the faith in Jesus himself. Jesus is determined to go to the cross, and Peter is trying to talk him out of it. This is what's going on. And Jesus knows what what the significance of his failure to go to the cross would mean. Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of doing the thing by which all are saved, including Peter. In that moment, when Peter says this thing to Jesus, the words coming from Peter's mouth are no different to the lies coming from the mouth of Satan, trying to talk Jesus out of being the saviour of the world. And so Jesus rebukes him very sternly uh, in what doesn't look loving, but absolutely is. Now, for our perspective, our purposes, let's just place ourselves in Peter's shoes just for a moment. Why on earth would he have done that? Actually, Peter's actions entirely make sense, don't they, from a human point of view? I like Jesus. 
Do I want him to be crucified? No. Therefore, I should attempt to encourage him not to be crucified. That makes sense. Peter, Peter, Peter is being very human in this moment. To us, it makes sense that getting killed is bad, living is good. Jesus, don't get killed. But Jesus, the God-man who knows all things and knows what's in the heart of man and knows the plan of God before it comes to fruition, Jesus knows that there is something more important than living here on earth in comfort forever. There's, there is a higher purpose to life for us all, and especially so for Jesus in his incarnation. Some things are worth dying for. It's been a long time since we've been tested on this in this country. There are things which are worth dying for. Peter, says Jesus, you have set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. And that's why the words of Satan are coming out of your mouth right now. That's, that's important. That's important. Because it turns out that to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be saved by him, to walk in this new life that Jesus has won for us in his death and his resurrection, is to be rescued from a life lived for the things of man and redeemed into a life lived for the things of God, which is what Jesus instructs us on next in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, this is the context, right? Peter, you've got, your, you've got your eyes on the wrong prize. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me clear away a red herring really quickly. Verse 28, what does it mean? I don't know. It's, it's weird. Um, the best theory I have found is that he's referring to the fact that the very next story to happen in the Gospel of Matthew is the transfiguration when the glory of Jesus was revealed and some of those standing there were on top of the mountain with him. Um, is, it a perfect, is it a perfect reading of that? It uh, feels a bit funny, but it's the best I've found. Um, it doesn't change the significance of anything else that we're going to talk about today, so let's just take that one, put it over here, and contentedly ignore it. What we're going to give our attention to is four clear statements that Jesus made, each of which is profound. Each of which helps us consider what it means to belong to Jesus as our Savior, what it means to be a Christian. Here's the four statements. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Statement number two, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Statement number three, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Statement number four, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Why don't we look at them each in turn? This is what it means to be a Christian. These are, these, are, these are four appeals to us to live reasonably based on what is true. It may not seem true according to the things of man that to live like this is common sense, but God knows better. It is common sense to live in this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to belong to Jesus, the Savior? Once again, just a quick reminder how prescient this is. Take up your cross. What's a cross got to do with anything? We know now. The life of faith is a life of self-denial. Deny himself. Feel that one? It's a life of self-denial. It's a life of accepting of your um, acceptance of your personal cross. Take up your cross. And it's a life of following Jesus. Follow me. That is what the that is what faith does. That is that is the actions that follow faith. I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow Jesus. How descriptive is that? What does it mean to place my faith in Jesus as the Savior? It means, first of all, self-denial. There was a time in my life when I lived for my purposes, where living according to the things of man was what my life was about. I lived for the same reasons that all humans in their fallen state live for. My life was my own. My life was not about self-denial. It was about self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-service. That was what my life was about. But now that I'm going to follow the Savior, my life is about self Denial. I was mine and I lived for my purposes, but now I am his and I live for his purposes. That's what self-denial means. Christianity is not a self-centered religion. This isn't about me. Like, we didn't all come here today for me or for you. This is about God. It's not about you. (laughs) He is more important than us. It's also about others other than me receiving the blessing of God. So I've got to deny myself in order to have God at the center of my life. I am now his and I live for his purposes. It's about a personal cross. Once I have denied myself, I need to accept that this salvation is going to come at a cost. There is a, there is a price to pay the loss of whatever I need to lose in order to follow him. I need to suffer the loss of all things which are not pleasing to God in my life. I need to have sin be crucified in me, which will involve some degree of hardship. Let, Let us hope it doesn't mean literal crucifixion, though for some it has. I must take up my cross. There are things which I have to die to in order to follow Christ. Once, once this thing I, was precious to me, once this thing was competing with God for his place in my life, now it is dead to me. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's a self-denial. I'm not mine. There is a personal crucifixion and accepting of the cost. And then there is a following Jesus. Get on with it. Live the life that he's called you to live. Christianity is an active faith. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus gives us the wonderful gift of salvation. We should bury it under the sand and and just hold it there until the end of our life. The parable of the talents tells us that's foolish. No, we use the gifts he gives us. We live the life he's called us to live and enables us to live. We follow him into the life he has called us to live. There is a self-denial, a crucifixion, and a following. Isn't that great? So clear. It's a great description of the Christian life. I'm still me, right? I still like and enjoy many of the things I used to enjoy. 
I can absolutely fulfill this command of Jesus whilst working a normal job. You can be a, a teacher or a banker or a hairdresser and do these things. Not everyone has to leave their work and, and join vocational ministry as the only way to be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. You can be a you can be a nurse who loves Jesus and is a nurse, a carer, a parent. Lawyers. Maybe. But the principle is that there is a change of ownership and acceptance of the cost and a new life to live. That's what it means to place your faith in Jesus. Those things don't happen before you place your faith in him. They happen immediately after. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Idea number two about what it means to be a Christian. This is an appeal to us to, to be reasonable. Whoever would save his life would lose it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This one's good. Like, like Jesus, right? He just, how does he know my inside thoughts when I've never said them outside? But he does consistently. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a very real thing. This is the thing that he's addressing. There is a, a self-defensive reaction that we have when we encounter the radical teaching of Jesus. It's, there is an instinct in us, for obvious reasons, for self-preservation. And Jesus tells us that instinct of self-preservation is spiritually dangerous. I, the best illustration I've got, um, I like to ride mountain bikes a little, not a lot, I've sort of, I dabble. Can I get up the dorky photo? Here's me in my um, mountain biking gear, being a hero under a bridge outside of Ipswich somewhere. Um, Sorry? The bike is behind the camera. My brother took the photo, and I couldn't find one of me and my bike. So I've got pictures of my bike, and I've got pictures of me, but I don't have pictures of me on my bike. I couldn't, I, I searched for as long as it was appropriate to search. Here's the thing about, uh, about mountain bike riding. I only started doing this as an adult. I was in my late 20s the first time I jumped on a mountain bike. And so I remember the process of what it was like to learn to ride on a trail. Um, there's a funny thing that happens when you, when, when you are learning to ride. When you're heading down, I'm going to use the key, I'm going to use the, this is like what we call a gnarly trail, right? Um, when you're heading down a, a sort of a section of track where there's bumps to get over, tree roots and things, um, my reaction of self-preservation was to go super slow. The problem with going super slow on a bike, you're on two wheels. The, so what that did was my, my sense of self-preservation led me to, to stack a heap because I need to be safe, I need to go slow, caused me to fall over. Do you feel it? There is a strange war that goes on in your mind because if you go faster, you are more stable and things that would knock you over at low speeds become little bumps that are gone in, in a millisecond. Um, they become less of a problem. You, you, you plow right over them. And so that sense of self-preservation, that instinct that tells you to go for the brakes is dangerous. And safety actually lies in letting go. This principle is so true that the people who are really good at this actually clip their feet into the pedals, which is what that second picture is about. They tie themselves to their bike before they go down the silly trails doing things that I will never do even if I practice forever. 
there's something like this in what it means to follow Jesus. The actual safest place for us to be, the actual, the actual safest place for your soul to be, is in his care and under his control. That's, that's where you are safe. The actual best life that you can live is life according to God's will. That's what you need. That's what's best for you. But in order to have my soul in his care, in order to have life to the full, I have to let go of some things that I want here and now, some safety and some security, some things that make us feel secure, that are keeping us away from actual security. In order to keep those things in my life, I would have to push God away. That would put me in very real spiritual peril. The risky life of following Jesus is where eternal security is found. If if anyone would save his soul, he will lose it. If, if you live your life trying to save your own soul, thinking, well, I know what I'm capable of, that's the like, life is best when I'm in control, right? If you live like that, you will lose your soul because it's not true. It feels true. It's not true. Anyone who loses his life, not just, not just in vain, not just, not just flippantly, anyone who loses his life for my sake, says Jesus, We'll find it. We've got to let go of the brakes, spiritually speaking. We've got to let Jesus be the Lord, which means I have to not be the Lord. I have to serve the Lord with gladness. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is an appeal to sanity over feeling. Here's the next one. Once again, an appeal to our reason. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you remember when Jesus was being tempted in the desert by the devil? This was the lie. This is one of the, one of the three lies that the devil told him. Jesus, just bend the knee. Worship me and I will give you everything. Remember, he, 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 however this means, he was taken to a place where he could see all the kingdoms of man up, in the, up at the pinnacle of of the summit. Just bend the knee and this is all yours. I'll give it to you. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is, this is a call to do maths. <laughs> Am I going to live for God or live for myself? If, if I'm going to live for myself, if I'm going to live my best version of life, what will the outcome be? At best, at best, I might succeed in gaining the world. I might be one of the lucky ones who, who manages to do it. I could be in charge of everything. Everyone, everyone could be my friend. They will all think nicely of me because I will only present my best self on social media 24-7 and everyone will be amazed at my, at my influencer life. I might have the wealth. I might have the health. I might be able to pay to get them to put hair back on my head. Like Elon Musk, right? I might gain the world. I might be, I might, at best, I might be one of the, the lucky few. If, if I ever rock up here with hair, you know what's happened. I've won the lottery. 
You don't, you don't believe, I was one of the pretty ones. I could gain the world and forfeit my soul. That's a bad trade. Don't live like that. That is, that is the best case scenario if you live for yourself. You only have one soul. You don't get another shot at this. How is it profit? If like accountants do, do the spreadsheet thing that I don't know how to do. What profit is it? Is it going to be in red or black? Gain world, forfeit soul. It's in the red. That's a loss. I think that's how that works. Is that how that works? <laughs> what good is a few years of having the world compared with the eternity of losing your soul? And, and likewise, and likewise, what is a few years of self-denying suffering in this world compared with the riches of being reconciled to the God who made you and adopted into his family and received for eternity. How is that a loss? There's a famous quote, stirring stuff, by a, 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 a former English cricket player, we can forgive him for that, turned missionary, we like him for that, named C.T. Studd. He said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Not C.T. Studd? Is that Jim Elliot? Jim Elliot, the missionary, got killed. All right, I always get those two confused. What was the CT stud one? I'm going to look it up later. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In the words of Jesus, how is it profit for you to gain the world and forfeit your soul? It's not. If you refuse to follow Jesus in some area of your life, it is probably because at some fundamental level you believe that you stand to gain something by rejecting him. Isn't that why we do what we do? I think my life would be better off if I had my way. It's not true. You're mistaken. It's a bad trade. Here's the last part. Jesus is coming back. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What is this? This is an encouragement not to faff about with this decision. This is a decision we all have to make in life. Decision is the biggest one you'll ever make. It's about what to do with Jesus. He calls you to a response. Am I going to worship him or not? Am I going to serve him or am I going to serve something else, ultimately me? It's a decision each and every soul has to make and our decision has the most con significant consequence of any decision we will ever make. Like, have you, have you hung out with a bride and groom on the night before a wedding? They feel the weight of the decision that they're about to make tomorrow. That lasts a human lifetime. This decision is bigger. It's eternal. And you don't have forever to make it. There's a time limit. There's a, there's a, there's, there is a clock ticking. What, the day is coming when we will face Jesus and his judgment. When the sun comes in a way which is different to his first coming. In his first coming, he came as the merciful savior. In his second coming, he comes as the righteous judge who separates the sheep from the goats.
There's a day coming when we will all face him. It's going to come one of two ways. It's going to come during our lifetime here on this earth if we happen to be the generation that is alive on the day that Jesus decides to return in this matter. Every generation of Christians to ever live has been like, is it us? And thus far it hasn't happened yet. But it's, but it's coming. We don't know when. He hasn't told us quite on purpose. You know why? Because if he told us, we would have been doing the maths. Oh, I've got until September of next year to repent. That's, that's human nature. We will either meet him on the day of his return during our lifetime, or if like so many before us, we will meet him having died and being resurrected on the last day. But we will meet him and we will give an account and he will, his words, repay each person according to what he has done. I don't have forever to make this decision. I don't know which way I am going to meet Jesus, but it's going to be one of these two. Don't muck about. Don't muck about with this. Don't live your life thinking, I'd like to look into God one day when I get around to it. Don't, don't live your life thinking, I can toy with this idol in my 30s and 40s because I'll have time to fix it afterwards. Don't, don't live your life thinking, Christians, that if you and God are wrestling over control of some area in your life, don't, don't meet him whilst you're still wrestling. Sort it out today. Hand it over today and experience both his grace and restoration and forgiveness today, but also walk into the life to the full that Jesus wants for you and also walk out of the guilt of knowing that you could meet him not ready. How cool is it that two people have made their decision in this church this year? We're going to hear this story tonight. They're going to get up this evening and they're going to tell us, I stand with Jesus. They're going to get up and they're going to tell us how it is that he has led them from where they were to where they are. For those of you who come tonight, we're going to listen together. We're going to ask ourselves, what does following Jesus mean for me? What is he calling me to do? Because sanity would go, well, how quickly can I obey? Let's pray. Hmm. (laughs) Jesus, I want to thank you for your refreshing honesty. Thank you for not mincing words on this most important of topics. Thank you for speaking so incredibly clearly to us. Um, Thank you, Peter. For being, <laughs> for being the example of what not to do. Um, help us all today to count the cost of what it means to live for you. To look at our, our lives with honest eyes and to honestly ask, where do I stand with Jesus? Am I living a life of self-denial? Willing crucifixion? Following the Savior? Or am I living a life of self-service and gratification and sufficiency? Of avoiding crosses and following after my own lusts?
Oh, Jesus, speak to us right now. Holy Spirit, convict us right now where we stand with you. Lord, we know that you didn't say this to condemn, but to call. But to talk sense to to insane people who are putting their souls in peril. Of waking up the sleepers who've grown complacent. Of strengthening weak knees and making paths straight. Jesus, give me the good sense to obey you, to come when you call, to follow where you lead, to put down all things in my life which oppose you, which are being used as as idols, false saviors. Give me the real savior. Pray that there there would be none here who hear my voice today who would gain the world and forfeit their soul. Lord, save us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.